Welcome to Kingdom in Context. The Creator never intended for us to be confused by His words. He gave us His words of life, and He gave them in context, to be understood and beneficial to our walk with Him. This channel's goal is to bring clarity to some of the misconceptions that have formed over time among believers and taught by others, however innocent and well intended. The scriptures make complete sense when we keep them in context of His coming kingdom and His coming King, Jesus the Messiah. If you're blessed by what we're doing with this channel and feel led to support us, visit the video description below where we have a PayPal option, a monthly Patreon option, or a traditional P.O. Box address. Thank you, and remember, context creates comprehension. Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast, and I'm Sean Griffin. I appreciate you joining us tonight. Um, I was a little late tonight finishing up some notes, but I really appreciate you guys that are here. And I'm celebrating my first day of Sukkot. Um, not the first time, but the first day of this festival. It's a seven-day festival, also with an eighth day attached, which is the Feast of Engathering, also as Book of Jubilees calls it, the Feast of Edition. And um, today is has kicked off a Sabbath for me, so I've actually have just been resting my wife made an incredible meal and uh, we've just been in the Sukkot resting a little bit. So I appreciate everyone that is here and joining us. It is um, good to see everyone. There's quite a few people in the chat already. And I do thank you for being here. Elias Stewart, Deanna Clark, cover to cover with Jeremy Pierce, Earl Rogers. Good to see everyone. Mr. Bear's back. Maxim Lavrov, welcome back. Mr. David Shear had to take off. I appreciate it, brother, though. We'll see you next time, I'm sure. Scott McVicker, Janet, AC Estevan, West Plays Music. Welcome, brother. Welcome. LJ Angelo, Ancient Ways Modern Man. That's a good name. Miss Janet's here. Jubion Kenobi. That's always a good name. All right, guys. I appreciate everyone here. There's more, but I need to get to it because tonight we're continuing our New Testament context for pastor series. And I, I normally try to do like, you know, multiple chapters out of out of Matthew, but some of these chapters in Matthew, guys, they're just so chock full of context from the Old Testament and from the prophets. And it's just like, I would just be skipping over way too much and not do it justice sometimes. So that's why tonight I'm just looking at Matthew 19 as opposed to doing two or three chapters at a time. But hey, there's so much in this chapter. Sorry. <laughs> there's so much in this chapter. It is just, uh, man, it's truly it's truly a blessing, guys. Truly a blessing, guys. Remember, we talked about uh, every week. Every week that we've done this, I say continually that Jesus is always preaching the gospel, of the kingdom of God. So, if you're a pastor out there and you clicked upon this because of the title, or my quirky face, or whatever, um, and you thought, "Man, who is this kid that people say he looks like he's in his early twenties, about to tell me what context is?" I do this with love, guys. By the way, I'm forty, so. Um, I actually have a lot of gray hair. You just can't. Uh, maybe it's just the lights. People can't see it that well. I don't know. But I'm 40 and I've been studying the Bible for 23 years. So this is something that, I, you know, I went to church in my life. I've sat under countless sermons from different pastors and different denominations of churches. 
And while I respect the people that donate, that devote their life to being in ministry, because I know that it, that's not easy. My dad was a pastor growing up and I realized and saw everything that he sacrificed and what he did um, to serve people at the church that he pastored and attended. And that, then he went on to do missions work as a full-time ministry and he still continues to serve people even to this day. So much respect to people that are actually devoting their life to ministry. Okay. And I just, but as someone that, that did go to Bible college and did, you know, consider the idea of going into a route of actual full-time ministry when I was like 21, I struggle, I struggle really bad for, for decades um, with reading the book as far as like, I would hear, I would hear passages being referenced at a sermon or in a teaching, but I'm that crazy guy that was actually reading the whole chapter. So after the, after the pastor went, he, he read one verse and then he started talking about something to try to make that verse relatable to today. I tuned him out and I just kept reading the rest of the chapter and sometimes the chapter before it, sometimes the chapter after it. Sometimes I'd read the entire, like if it's a smaller epistle, like James or Philippians or Galatians, or sometimes I remember one time I even read all, all the first Corinthians during a service and I had no clue what the service was actually about. That's the kind of, I jokingly call myself a word nerd because that's what I was doing when I was in Bible school classes. I'll never forget. I'll be in my old Testament classes. And I, someone had given me this little Bible translator that had like multiple Bible translations inside of it. And I was fascinated by that because I, I realized that there was, you know, a situation where translators use different words at different times. I didn't understand why yet. Cause I didn't understand about plagiarism laws and publishing laws, but I was fascinated that, you know, we could be reading something pertaining to the old Testament, like in, in Genesis per se. And I could look it up in this little Bible translator. It looked like a, like an old game boy almost, right? It was this old little handheld thing. And uh, from like 2000, 2001, and I just remember looking at all the different translations and being just amazed, just truly amazed. And so it just dug me deeper and deeper and deeper. And, uh, oh, my wife's in the chat. She's giving me a hard time because I haven't shaven today. What, what would happen if I grew this beard out, sweetie? What would happen? Would I be sleeping on the couch? Is that what it is? No. I might grow this beard out in the future. You never know. But honestly, guys, it doesn't even really look good on me, in my opinion. Like I, I grew it out in 2012. It's patchy. There's some like red in it. It's not really even uniform. Um, I, I don't think that the father intended me to have it personally, because it must be all the Native American in me um, being the mixed mixed race as I am. So I'm not really worried about it. But basically, guys, um, if, if you're a pastor and you're watching this, this is not, this is no slam against you. This I, I know because I've have friends that were pastors, spoken with people that were pastors. I, I know that everyone's still learning. Truly. We're still learning. It's just how we focus on the learning. So in most seminaries, they train a pastor to be accredited and to go off and start his own church plant or to take over a church that's already established. And you learn what they teach you. Yes, you're supposed to know the Bible to some degree, but you learn a lens of looking at the Bible through whatever denomination you come from. And the majority, 99.9% of modern seminaries and Bible colleges today, they're focusing on this concept that is carried over from Catholicism, carried over through Protestant teachings. This idea that 
it's a, it's called a dispensational theology. It's a uh, secessionalism, right? Where they teach that the Old Testament has been fulfilled by Jesus and is not applicable to our lives anymore. I want to put forward that that's not true. And there's been millions of people in the last 15 to 20 years that have been waking up to that fact that that is not true. Because the, when we read the whole chapter, when we look up the meanings of the words, like you're going to see me do tonight, when we actually cross-reference verses that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets, we start to realize just how eternal this behavior of our Messiah is. That He didn't come along and do a new behavior. He came along and showed us the right behavior that the Law and the Prophets had been speaking about this whole time. But the Pharisees of his day were teaching people a, a twisted version of that behavior. This is why he reprimands their bad theology and tries to teach the people the actual good theology of the law and the prophets. And this is what the Pharisees ended up accusing him, you know, of being of basically um, breaking the law, being a heretic. And they accused him of going against their teachings, going against their oral laws. They slandered him, falsely persecuted him, and accused him, hung him on a cross as a result through the Roman powers. So. Th this battle for proper understanding of the law and the prophets is is time tested, two thousand years old, actually a lot longer than that. But I mean, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Is is the is the Son of God, who is the Word made flesh, as He tells us, He has the same doctrine that His Father. He, everything He sees and does, he, he saw the Father see and do it first. His doctrine is not His own, right? What is it, John seven fourteen? Everything He's saying, He gets from the Father. So the father's not going to change his tune midway through the book. The father tells us in the first part of the law and prophets, his law is eternal. So let's look at what Jesus is actually teaching people in, um, in Matthew 19 tonight. Let me just pull this up real quick for us. That is really weird. I don't know why that was doing that. <laughs> well, Joy, listen, I gave it a lot of time and it just didn't, it didn't fill in. So, I mean, I don't think I need like beard wig, you know, little beard patches to, to glue onto my face or anything. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's for me, to be honest with you, but we'll see in the future. Who knows? Maybe I'll surprise people. All right, guys, you ready? Matthew 19. Let's, we're going to start in verse three through nine. Like I've said before, we, we can't cover every single verse, just not enough time in the day, my day, unfortunately. So we're going to look at these first uh, six verses here in three through nine. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. What wherefore God is joined, let no man separate. And the Pharisees said back to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said back to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So guys, this, this what we're looking at here, it, Yeshua is not agreeing with their premise. I just hope, I just want to throw that out right out the gate. He's not agreeing with their premise. Their premise was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Yeshua is disagreeing with them by quoting to them Genesis 2. But at the same time, he's 
he's then going to, he, they say, well, then they're trying to test him. Right. So literally what verse one says, they're testing him. So then they go and they give another false dichotomy and they said, but Moses did give a certificate of divorce to send her away. Guys, these are antagonists. So if you don't know the law very well, and we're going to go over the Deuteronomy laws about this. It's also in numbers. So if you don't know the law of God that they're actually trying to antagonize and test Jesus with, then you don't know how they're twisting it when they're actually trying to test Jesus. But Jesus does, right? Because he knows it perfectly. So that's why he says back to them in, their, in the second rebuttal, he's like, oh, it's because of the hardness of heart that he was allowed you to divorce your wives. But then he qualifies the condition by which Moses allowed them to divorce their wives. He says, except for sexual morality. So that's the condition there. We're going to look at that. But I'll, but also we're going to actually look at the idea of how um, any man who divorces his wife except for that reason and marries someone else, then the man is committing adultery. And we're going to look at both ends of that, both for the woman and the men, as we explore this a little further. So let's look here at this concept right here. Of what did Moses actually say? Does it line up with what the Pharisees initially said in verse 3? To try to test Jesus because they they didn't quote it properly. I'm letting you know right now. Deuteronomy 24 1, this is where most people think they were quoting from. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. The rest of these passages go on to talk about how if she marries someone else and all the circumstantial concepts and that. But this is what people think the Pharisees are referring to is that if a man finds some indecency in his wife, well, guys, this isn't just some indecency. It's not like she just lost favor just because, you know, she can't cook or because who knows, you know what I'm saying? It's because she suddenly, you know, is, is stop, you know, putting on eyeshadow or something. This isn't, she's not falling out of favor for just any reason. He has found some indecency in her and there's multiple circumstances, how that can actually happen. And we're going to review those scriptures right now. So let's look at the first circumstance. This is with a newly married couple. Okay. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 22, 13 through 21. It says, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with the shameful deeds and publicly defames her by saying, I took this woman, but when I came near her, meaning came to conjugate the marriage, came to have sex with her, he says, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take her and bring her, bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I didn't find your daughter a virgin, but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel and she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. I'm going to stop right here real quick, guys, because this is in this first scenario. Okay. Of when the couple first comes together, this man is claiming to have found an indecency in her. that She actually wasn't a virgin that she had actually had sex with someone else. Okay. So then he's, he's literally turning against her, right? He's, she's lost favor in his eyes, but this is a greater context to that statement because there's circumstantial caveats of how this is going down. And this is in the, in the throes of, you know, an early relationship when two people are getting together. Now, for whatever reason, if the guy's wrong about his accusation, 
and that's proven by the you know the testimony of the mother and the father with their cloth, then we have a man that's being fined and he cannot divorce her. So when the Pharisees are saying, if a man says you know can divorce his wife for any reason at all, well, this right here is would be any reason at all because the guy's literally trying to find a reason to divorce her, but it's not even true. And he's actually defaming her at the same time, which is really unfortunate. She regains her honor, by the way, by the the, the monies of the, the hundred shekels paid to the father. And that's that's a, you know, legally it was a transactional process that literally would regain her honor amongst the community and, and with her family and everything. I mean, her father and her mother already knew the guy was lying, but because of the process, she's being vindicated so that in the community, she's not defamed. So the girl is protected in this scenario, which is pretty amazing against false accusations. So this is now disqualifying the man for just coming up with any reason at all to divorce his wife. Honestly, this, this, in this scenario, this dude sounds like a jerk. So, but let's look at what happens if it's actually true. What happens if this guy has a new wife, they go to the, the you know, the wedding night and they're going to have sex for the first time. And suddenly she's not a virgin. Okay, so there's more to the story. It says, but if the charge is true that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house. The men of her city shall stone her to death because she's committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus, you shall purge the evil from among you. Sounds pretty harsh, right? Sounds pretty harsh. Guys, don't, by the way, don't, don't think this doesn't apply to men too. If a man goes into a woman, he's basically betrothing her. So this is not something that you, there, there was no unwed fornication in ancient Israel. So this isn't just applying to a woman. So that's just one scenario of when a couple first gets together and how if a man tries to find displeasure or loses favor for his wife and tries to divorce her for any reason at all, well, he's trying to come up with the only reason he can divorce her which is that she's not a virgin. Therefore, she has not been, you know, honest with him as far as being chased with, with, uh, before they got married. So he, he feels embarrassed, but he's now embarrassing himself. If she is, as she, if she has been chased and was a virgin because the law vindicates the woman, if she's, if she's innocent. Okay. So therefore this, disqualifies the any reason at all because we're already getting context to the only reason at all that a man and wife can divorce. And this goes on to explain this further. So if we go to Numbers chapter five, this is the situation where the husband and wife are already married. So already together. So when they first got together and they had their wedding night, there wasn't any problems. She was a virgin. He could tell it was provable. Everything's fine. She still loves him. He still loves her. No, no problems. No, no weird suspicions. But unfortunately, that doesn't always last between a husband and a wife. Ten years down the road, sometimes men stray, women stray. Sometimes nobody strays, but sometimes men and women get jealous. In the case of a man getting jealous over the wife, Numbers chapter five is is in, lays out uh, pretty succinctly what happens. If it's suspected that the woman did actually have sexual immorality and when she actually was indecent by being unfaithful. And it says right here in verse 11 through 15, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if a man's wife goes aside and commit a trespass against him, meaning a man lie with her carnally 
and it's hid from the eyes of her husband and be kept close and she be defiled and there be no witness against her. Neither she be taken with the manner and the spirit of jealousy come upon him. So this is basically saying there's no one to prove it. He just has his suspicions and he's jealous of his wife and she's defiled or the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he be jealous of his wife and, and she be not defiled. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest and he shall bring her offering for her. The 10th part of an ephah of barley meal, he shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon for it's an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So this isn't going to be a sweet smelling sacrifice here. This is, this is one that's, going to be pretty bland because this is a this is a rough occasion. It goes on to say in 16 through 21, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and of the dust that is the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it into the water. The priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causes the curse. And the priest shall charge her by an oath and say unto the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of your husband, but you be free from this bitter water that causes the curse. But if you have gone aside to another instead of your husband, and you are defiled, and some man has lain with you besides your husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing. And the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord does make your thigh to rot and your belly to swell. Now, guys, just before you, you know, just before you, you know, we go too far in this, in this circumstance, in this situation, all of this could have been avoided. There's no witness against the woman, so she's not in, under the death penalty. If the husband says, did you cheat on me? And she says, yes. Well, then they got some decisions to make. They don't have to go through this process. This is a, like a, a severe case where the husband feels very justified in his suspicion but the wife's holding to her guns. Okay. So this is a severe situation, but they could have already just had a conversation beforehand and worked it out, either stay together or parted. And we're going to actually look at how that can actually happen in scripture. And I'm going to go over that with you. But in this specific extreme case where the, the husband is feeling like the woman is not being honest, then you have this whole situation that goes down and I'll finish uh, reading the last few verses here. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your bowels to make your belly swell and your thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen, meaning she agrees to this process. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and that, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water, and he shall cause the woman to drink the, the bitter water that causes the curse. And the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. And then the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand and shall wave the offering before the Lord and offer it on the altar. And the priest afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. I'm sorry. I skipped a line and the priest shall take a handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof and burn it upon the altar. And afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. And when he has made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she is defiled and has done and did indeed trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter and her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot. And the woman shall be a curse among her people. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. So, sorry, one second, guys. So basically, this again, I want to, I want to, you know, drive home the idea that this is a test in a severe circumstance 
where the woman's being dishonest. Now, if she, if she was honest and the husband just had a, um, just basically was uh, jealous for no reason or, or his jealousy was uh, without good cause, then she's vindicated and he can have his, his conscience will be free. Again, if she was lying, she didn't have to go through this process. The whole reason she would even go through this process is because there's no witness against her and she's not telling her husband the truth, but there seems to be, you know, between the husband and wife, there seems to be a lot of red flags. And basically she's literally leading it up to God himself. So this is, this would reveal if she actually failed this test and she drank, you know, some of this uh, dusty water, if she actually failed this test, then basically she's showing that she didn't even believe God would, would vindicate her husband. She, she believed that not even God could see her deeds basically, and she could get away with it. Does that make any sense? So this is a situation where it's an extreme event, but the point of why I'm bringing this up is we've looked at two cases now. Okay. And we're going to look at a third. We've looked at two cases where the first case is a young couple gets together and the, the husband suspects indecency in her sexual immorality that she wasn't truly, um, you know, chaste and virgin. And that caused her to lose favor. So he wanted to put her away. So there was a way to vindicate the woman. So she's not put away and he has to marry her. He cannot divorce her. And we're going to go over why Jesus says some things he does because of that case. Okay. But then also the same thing here, if this guy still in this situation here with the numbers five test of adultery, if the woman passes the test and she goes on to, to get pregnant later and then everything's fine and the husband still has issues and loses, she still, he can't uh, seem to find trust for her again after this point in his mind where he already went through all this because he distrusted her so much. He, that means he's lost, she's lost favor in his eyes. He still cannot divorce her. And if he does, he's going to make her an adulterer and whoever he remarries will make him an adulterer. This is what Jesus is explaining to us. And I'm going to go on and I'm going to explain this more, a little bit more in depth. So this is why third scenario we see is actually Mary and Joseph, parents of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So here is a situation, guys, where he's not even trying to go to her parents and say she's she wasn't a virgin. He's because she's clearly she's pregnant, right? So this isn't guesswork on the on the wedding night, or this isn't weird suspicion on the wedding night. She's literally pregnant. There's only one way that happens. Because there's only there's only two genders, <laughs> so this is him trying to actually. It literally says he's a righteous man, it means he has right behavior, and he's not wanting to disgrace her. So even though in his mind he thinks at this point the angel comes to tell later that truly you know her seed is from the Holy Spirit and it's not not another person. It's okay, trust her. She literally gets validated by heaven. But before that happens, he thinks, oh, man, you know, she she stepped out on me. And uh, but instead of instead of bringing her forward to disgrace her and publicly defame her, he's going to put her away quietly. So even though the law has opportunity for a bad relationship to to for some person to be found, you know, the, the problem in that relationship and the other person be vindicated, like we just read from Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 24, Numbers 5. We also have mercy that could be extended between a husband and a wife. 
And Joseph is actually planning to do that himself. He was actually just going to, you know, let it go, just be gone and just, just move on and not try to defame her. You know, she would have to answer questions to other people raising the child on her own, but he wasn't going to, you know, it wasn't his child. So he thought at the time. So he was just going to, he wasn't going to defame her. He was just sent her back to her parents' house more than likely. So the whole concept is that. <clears throat> Okay, I'm back. Sorry, guys. I don't know what happened. But let's keep moving. Matthew 19. This is why Yeshua is saying at the end of this passage in verse 9 that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality. And we just went through three different scenarios with the whole sexual morality concept. So any other reason? And by the way, in those two out of those three scenarios, the woman, well, actually all three of them technically, there's an opportunity for the woman to actually, you know, be treated fairly, adjust according to the law of God, and be protected from, you know, indecent slander. So this this whole concept, and at the end of this passage, when Yeshua says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. So now he puts the onus on the husband, on the man. So just in case the ladies out there are thinking this, some of this stuff sounds unfair, Jesus is literally telling you if if he... If she hasn't cheated and he he just doesn't like her anymore, they for whatever reason he just he's a he's a he has hardness of heart. He can't learn how to forgive and communicate with his wife and be tender to her, and he wants to put her away, then he's committing adultery because he's gonna put her away, he's gonna find someone else to marry, he's committing adultery. That's why he goes on to say the same concept about, or excuse me, that's why in the law in Deuteronomy 22. I have highlighted here, it's the idea the elders will will chastise the man who is treating the woman unfairly in this situation. If you have, of course, good elders, people that are actually elders in your community that are building relationships with people. But Matthew 5, 31 through 32, several chapters before Matthew 19, Jesus has actually already tried to explain this to us by saying, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now he's he's addressed the two different scenarios, and he's repeating this mantra the Pharisees are saying, but they're not saying the proper context. So Yeshua is saying the whole when he when she, when Yeshua says, "But I say to you," that's him going, but here's the context of that of that verse. There's a lot more going on in that in all, all the law of God pertaining to this topic. And then he goes on to hit to the to the core root of it, which is as we just read from those scenarios, unchastity. There's a committing of a, you know, so if she's not like that, if she's chaste, if she was fine, if she was loyal, and he still puts her away and she goes to marry someone else, then she's committing adultery. He's makes her commit adultery because that the, the proper scenario for them divorce as it hasn't taken place. And like Yeshua says, he also is going to be guilty of adultery. Like he says at the end of Matthew 19, nine, basically guys, the greater responsibility falls on the man. And this is very, you know, it's a very serious ordeal. 
think that gives us some good context for the whole concept of when it's acceptable for divorce. Um, there is forgiveness. I mean, there's millions of couples go through it all the time. There is forgiveness. People can actually get over it. Like Mary and Joseph, you know, he, he didn't, he had, he come out and publicly defamed her before the angel came to visit Joseph and actually explain the situation. Had he freaked out and not been a righteous man and acted like an ASS to her and to the people around her and defamed her, that would have been, no, I mean, it'd have been much difficult for reconciliation there, but he was going to do it quietly. This actually, nobody knew about it until it's recorded later. The angel come and validates it to Joseph's, Joseph's own heart and mind so that the situation is rectified. Um, obviously, that's a very unique situation. But the point is, you know what I mean? Like, take that first scenario in Deuteronomy 22. What happens if he thinks he's found indecency in his new bride and, you know, he goes to the father? Well, what happens if he defames her in front of all of Israel first? instead of just going to the father first. Remember, part of that process was he goes to the judges, which puts her business out in the street, basically. He could have just went to the father privately. And you see what I'm saying? So there is there is concepts within this where mercy can be applied and civility and, you know, and tact and, and tenderness and kindness and love. But if someone truly has been slighted, there is jurisprudence, there is proper... Uh, adjudication of the law um, so that there's just justification. But hopefully that hopefully that's helpful to, to understand these passages. Um, Matthew 19, if we go down further into verse 13 through 15, it says, then some of, some of the children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So how beautiful is this, guys? What is it about the let the children alone? Do not let them hinder. Do not hinder them coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How would he say that? Why would he say that? How does the kingdom of heaven belong to children? We actually see the promise of the coming of the kingdom of heaven in Zechariah chapter 8, 1 through 6. This is the context of why he would say that. It says, then the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord. I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And guys, just throwing this out there in all lovingness, if if you've been, if someone in your life that you know is a believer and they're trying to convince you of something called preterism, which claims that the kingdom of God is here now and we're just living it out, Guys, I mean, verses like this not only destroy that, but pray for that person. There's a lot of deception going on there um, because when the city of truth is here, when literally Yahweh's dwelling in the midst of Jerusalem, this is the new Jerusalem, this holy mountain. It's been referenced here, Zion. It's the new Jerusalem that comes down. Um, the world will have peace. So, yeah, just pray for those who are succumb to the preterist theology or what they call historicism um, in some circles. But it's very, very deceptive. Zechariah goes on to say in verses four through six, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, is it too difficult in the sight of the remnant of his people in those days? Will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. How beautiful. 
So a lot of people are maybe asking, because you've heard me talk a lot about the resurrection, I'll give you a very short answer to your question that may be formulating, because you may be wanting to ask, Sean, wait a minute, I thought we're not going to be marrying anyone in the resurrection. So the New Jerusalem is filled with the resurrected saints. That's what we inherit. That's the kingdom of God we actually get to inherit. How are there children and old men there? Because we get eternal life. We don't grow old. That's right. Remember, I've always talked about the survivors of the day of the Lord and how they are required on feast days to come to the city. Just like the same book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 15 to 19, talks about all the nations, the survivors of all the nations that had come to fight against Jesus at his coming. They came to fight against the Lord. They came in and sieged around Jerusalem on the day of the Lord. An entire and actually lots, lots of the lots of Israel, not just the city of Jerusalem. It's also they filled the valley of Armageddon as well. Um, but all those survivors of those nations. So basically, if all their husbands went out to battle, then it's the survivors of those nations that are going to be left over that are going to come to the city to receive provisions to survive. This is the beautiful, merciful, and wonderful provision of the New Jerusalem when it comes down to give people medicine from the tree from the leaves of the tree of life to give them free food and water to help them understand Torah so they can live in peace you're going to beat their weapons into plowshares kind of concept as Isaiah talks about so it's a beautiful beautiful promise all these millions of survivors don't know the exact number guys but the millions of survivors that are coming from all the different nations because they're required to um, not just for the feast but also literally to, to survive they're going to be coming and they will actually get to interact inside the new Jerusalem, which is called Zion. If they are clean, this is why in the Torah, we're required to be clean to come to before the Lord. And what, what are we supposed to do three times a year in Exodus 23 males are to present themselves before the Lord. You got to be clean to do that. If you're a male, if you have a, you know, over your family, you got wife and kids with you. They got to be clean too. When they come, Everyone's going to be abiding by Leviticus 13, 14, and 15, the cleanliness laws, as well as the dietary laws, because you can't be unclean eating carcasses or eating something unclean. The whole world will be doing the behavior of the creator because they'll be required to come into his house, the New Jerusalem, and interact. Because what does he call his festivals that they're required to come to? Feasts of joy. And these children will be playing in the streets. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands of kids. It's going to be beautiful, guys. It's going to be beautiful. No worry about people kidnapping them. No creepy white vans showing up saying, I got free hot dogs or free candy or whatever, something stupid. Actually, I used to know a girl when I was growing up, and she would say that there was this old, like, big Lincoln that would drive around her neighborhood, and this old lady would, like, open the door and say, kids, I got free hot dogs. And she would try to like coax the kids over to her to her big Lincoln, which sounds hilarious, but it's also scary, right? None of the kids did, thankfully. They, their parents had told them to stay away from strangers, that kind of stuff. But like that's you wouldn't have to worry about any of that. All that's you know, um, I'm going I'm going blank right now. What is it? Um, Joel chapter three talks about those uh, the nations that had traded their their boy for a glass of wine and sold their girls for harlots. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, the trafficking of human lives that takes place in, in the big system of Mother Babylon. It's all going to go away. It's going to be an amazing kingdom of God that Jesus is, is explaining here. 
comes down to the ground. All the nations that are survivors in the earth have to come to it to survive, literally, to get food and water. And then they're going to learn Torah. They're going to learn the behavior of the creator and his son. And they're going to get to come in the city when they're clean for feasts of joy. So you will have old men in the city. You will have kids playing in the streets. It's going to be beautiful, guys. We'll keep going. Matthew 19, 16 through 22. And someone came to him, that's Jesus. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? And he said to them, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then the guy said to Jesus, what, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, guys, I, I'm actually not going to focus on verses 20 through 22 that much. I'm just going to give you, for, for anyone watching that may be wondering why he's saying go sell your possessions. He doesn't say go sell all your possessions. This is part of Torah. This is in Deuteronomy 15, this idea that, you wanted, if you were wealthy, this is why he said he owned much property. That is a sign of wealth. If you were wealthy, you were supposed to give your excess to the poor. This is a part of Torah. You gave it to the temple so the priests could distribute it to the widows, the orphans, and the strangers among you that had, had need. So this guy was not doing that. So Jesus listed off some of these other things in the Torah and the law of God. And he's like, I'm doing all those. And Jesus, knowing who he is, could see in his heart and mind, he picks out one that he's not doing. It's like, if you want to be complete, and by the way, that's the same word that we see in Matthew 5, 48 for perfect. It's just the Greek word. In English, as it translates in English to perfect, we think it means without fault, but that's not what the Greek word means. It just means to be complete. It means you've done as much as you can till the very end. You're complete. You've been faithful to the end. You've done all that you is in your ability to do. Well, this guy was not doing all that was in his ability to do. He was not complete. Jesus knows which thing he's missing. He tells him. And, the, and this cuts him to the heart because he knew this guy was being basically greedy. He was withholding his hand, as Deuteronomy 15 says, from the poor in the land. And that is against the heart of Torah. So this that was the quick summation of the, of the uh, lat, latter portion of this passage. But let's look at the early portion of this passage. And why is Jesus, what is the context to Jesus telling this guy? This guy directly asks him, how do, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus responds to him, keep the commandments. Why would Jesus be able to say that? Is he making something up? No, of course not. He's just talking about the law and the prophets. This is exactly what we see in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. Yahweh says to the children of Israel, you are to perform my judgments and might keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I'm the Lord your God. So you should keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I'm the Lord. Guys, this is talking about eternal life. I've tried to explain this so many, so many times on this channel. Think about all the examples we have in the Old Testament where the children of Israel, after already having acknowledged the covenant and agreed to the covenant, and, and re-upped the covenant every year at Shavuot. That's what Shavuot is about. It's re-upping the covenant every year. After having done gone through that every year, and, and especially these in the wilderness, 
and he's literally telling them all the stuff that, you know, that I re-up the covenant with you, just like I did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm, I'm doing it with you guys too. You guys at the base of Mount Sinai, you raise your hand, you said, all that you say, we will do. So you guys agreed to this stuff. And now you're going to go against it. How, how long, guys, did they go against it as a group before Yahweh actually scattered them? Now, I want, I want to, I want, hopefully people are paying attention to what I'm saying here. This passage says, if you do my statutes and my judgments, a man may live, right? He's to perform them. That actually, that word is to practice in the Hebrew. Is to, to actually do them, right? To, to practice these statutes and judgments. And it says, by which a man may live if he does them. Well, how many times do we see them be rebellious in the Old Testament? And they're not killed immediately. That's not what this is saying. This isn't talking about the first death. This is talking about the opportunity to live forever. This is the promise of the covenant. It's been in there the whole time. Think about, think about the Old Testament. Think about how many places. The whole book of Judges. <laughs> There's like huge, huge swaths of decades and decades in the book of Judges where the Israelites in each clan by clan were not following the covenant. Did God just kill them immediately? No, of course not. Think about how many years that they're in Babylon that that um, that are repaying for the land that they didn't uh, keep the Sabbaths over. And all those years, those 400 plus years, that they had been rebellious. And God didn't come in year by year and kill them all physically. No. He promised them in the covenant, if you don't do my statutes and my judgments, I'm going to scatter you. And then your enemies will kill you. Your enemies will subjugate you and put you in captivity. And But wait, before that even happens, you're, you're going to have your whole community, your whole society, your agriculture, everything in your, in your country is going to deteriorate before you're invaded and scattered in captivity or possibly killed. Transgressing the covenant never included that they would immediately face the first death. But obeying the covenant always included that they would get eternal life. How interesting is that? So therefore, here we have Jesus Christ, the guy that literally gives them eternal life through the covenant, because he's the one that's prophesied to make that possible. He's the one through his priesthood that was prophesied of him, becomes the firstborn of many brethren, becomes the king of Israel, becomes the high priest of Israel, becomes the mediator unto God who can atone for our sins, the transgressions of the covenant, call our names out before the Father and raise us to eternal life. He's the one that was prophesied to fulfill that process of this, of when we see a statement like this and the Father's promising these people, look, if you do, if you do the terms of my covenant, you're going to have eternal life. You're going to live. Jesus makes that possible. So in no way do you get to earn your salvation because still we need Jesus to make that possible. But this is the promise. This is where the faith comes in is that if you do the behaviors of the creator, he says, I will give you eternal life. Now, the rest of that story is he was going to provide the, the promise, the fulfillment to that promise through his son. Okay. But the whole premise is right here. This is why Paul talks about this and tries to tell, tell us, explain this to us in Romans chapter 10, 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is the right behavior, which is based on law, shall live by that right behavior. This is what he's referring to. I've I've done an entire chapter or morning cup of context on Romans chapter 10, uh, 10, 4 specifically. And I go into great depth on this, but this is, this is why he's quoting 
you know, he's referencing Moses writing about this in Leviticus, this idea that if you practice this, if you do this behavior, you will live. Same thing in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Old Testament, Nehemiah verse 29 says, and, and he admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Excuse me. It, it's He's talking about Yahweh. He's, he's praying to Yahweh. He says, and you admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted ignorant, arrogantly and did not listen to your commandment, but sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. Same thing here in Galatians 3.12. Oh my gosh, did I just bring up Galatians? Yeah, so this is Galatians 3.12. This is Paul, same guy who wrote Romans 10, who was telling us Moses' words from Leviticus 18. says it again. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary. Guys, this is a if you can't see that this is a rhetorical statement, please take your time with it. You might as well just put a question mark after the word faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, meaning that's not correct. Let me correct you. He who practices them, what's them? The commandments, ordinances, and statutes, the law shall live by them. Did you guys know that not only does Paul talk about literally doing the law in Galatians, but also that it gives you eternal life, just like Jesus said in Matthew 19, 16. It's right here in Galatians 3.12, guys. So beautiful. Also, Revelation 22.14, Yeshua tells us again through Revelation through the prophet John. Revelation 22.14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That's eternal life, guys. Get to the tree of life. It's eternal life. You're in the city. That's the inheritance for the saints who get eternal life. Blessed are they who do his commandments. It's all right there. So let's go further into Matthew 19, 27 through 29. And this is where Peter says to Jesus, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? <laughs> what did it, Think about everything I just went over, guys as far as what there will be for Peter, right? I mean, the promise of the covenant is you, you literally get to live in Zion where it's going to be a beautiful place and a holy mountain of God with, you know, the um, peace on earth and the children playing and having a great time and uh, eternal life. You get to eat from the tree of life. You, it's And here is Peter, you know, he's still learning, guys. Let's give him a break, right? He's still being discipled. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? It's uh, And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So he's reminding Peter what he's going to get, position of the kingdom, which includes eternal life. But let's look at this word regeneration real quick. This is the this is the part where this literally helps us understand some of the timing, some of the qualifiers that we see from the Old Testament. This is part of how we find context. We need to look up the definitions of words. This context leads us to the Old Testament. This word regeneration in the in the Greek is palagonesia. And it's literally to regenerate, to renew a new birth. We see this prophesied in Isaiah 66 about the kingdom, Zion, birthing to eternal life, its inhabitants. Isaiah 66, 6-9. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord who's rendering recompense to his enemies. By the way, guys, this is actually Revelation 11. Um, I think it's 11 through 15. 
well, there's thunder and lightnings and commotions and also you know the angels are shouting out glory to the yahweh he's taking his power and begun to reign this is that moment before she travailed she being zion I didn't have time to go through the whole context of, of Isaiah 66. Before she travailed, she brought forth, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That's Yeshua. That's Messiah. He's birthed of the Spirit of God, not birthed from the seed of man, right? But from the seed of the Spirit of God, right? The seed of the Holy Spirit. So this is why everyone that's birthed of the Spirit of God is metaphorically being birthed of Zion. This is, this is how that metaphoric terminology works with explaining Zion in the Old Testament. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. What does Yeshua describe the end times to be like? He describes it like birth pangs, increasing in fervency. And when, when you know, the lady's ready to give birth. This is Zion travailing, birthing an entire nation at once. It's the resurrection on the day of the Lord. And the boy that she birthed without travail, that was Yeshua much earlier. So this is both explaining Yeshua and the, the great day of resurrection for the saints on the day of the Lord. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord, or shall I? Who gives delivery? Shut the womb, says your God. These are rhetorical questions. Is you know our creator's famous for asking rhetorical questions. Um, he's these are rhetorical meaning. He's like, no, I'm not going to bring to the point of delivery and then not give delivery. I will do this. I will accomplish the resurrection of the saints. This is what he's promising. You can you can count on it. Luke twenty eight thirty. Yeshua goes into further explanation of context to explain why he's telling Peter what you're going to get as a result of following me. Not only will you sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, but he goes on to expound with the same promise. And Luke, uh, I'm sorry, guys, there's a little bit of a, uh, let me fix this right now, a little bit of a typo. This is in Luke 22 at Passover. He tells um, Peter, he says, you are, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father's granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's beautiful, guys. You got our qualifier of the kingdom itself. What did I tell you guys? She was talking about the kingdom everywhere he goes. We got our qualifier of the kingdom of the resurrection, of literally coming down to earth, children playing inside. It's beautiful. Tree of life's there. It's there's so much there. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. Um, and that is Matthew 19 for this episode. Really appreciate you guys joining me. If you have any questions, now's a good time. You just want to put them in all capitalization so I can see them easily in the chat and then drop them in the chat. And I'll be glad to try to get to them. But hopefully that was clear. If it wasn't, please ask your questions and I'll be glad to address them. Yes, Wendy, you're right. This is what's going on. This is Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 3 uh, being fulfilled in real time in our lives. He is bringing to mind his commands. 
Uh, Sean M., we've never seen um, a specific verse that tells you. I personally think it's um, it was a, an arrangement, an agreement. Um, I mean, you had to pay the the dowry to the to the father. So I don't think that it was just. I think that if you did, because um, if you go into Deuteronomy, it goes into further explanation. I think it's in chapter twenty one. It goes into further explanation that the father can even like annul the engagement if he didn't want to. Um, but there was, it's, it's a very similar process that we would have today. Just because you hooked up with someone doesn't mean you're automatically married to them. There was usually a, a, a legal process involved with the, with the parents or the daughter. Okay. Angelo, Angelo Tulio. I think I said that right. I'm sorry. Tulio. It's asking Sean, what did your shoe look like? Was he bronze skin or light with Sandy hair, woolly eyes, woolly hair, blue eyes, big debate. Not sure be honest with you um i know we get uh revelation one you get you get what looks like a, a description but so many people try to interpret that in different ways um i i apologize for the abrupt answer i personally don't care i don't care if he's korean i don't care if he's south african i don't care if he's north african kenyan looking i don't care i don't care if he's norwegian looking my messiah trend you know Here's a cool thing. Um, Second Baruch chapter 51, verse uh, 8 through 11, tells you that when you get your resurrected body, you'll be able to change your form. However, just like the angels are able to um, to disappear and reappear, just like Yeshua did in John chapter 20, where he just appeared inside of a room that where the doors were closed and the disciples were startled. And they thought it was a ghost, you know. And then he uh, he was like Luke 24. He's walking on the road to Maus he, he, with the two disciples that he's with. He's explaining stuff to them. He get back to their house. They got to break bread and eat together. He just disappears right in front of them. This is the kind of uh, physical capability of having his glorified body, just like angels. He, that's why he promises us in Luke 20, 36, that we're at the resurrection. We're going to get these bodies like angels where we can literally, as Second Baruch chapter 51, 8 through 11 says, we can change our form whenever we desire. So... Doesn't matter what it, what his skin tone is. He's full of light. He's glowing with light. All right. Um, see, Miss Marsh is asking: Does the Lord appoint all leaders and kings, or just allow? Oh, I don't know if there's more to your question, Miss Marsha. Um, this looks like there should be more to your question. I just don't see the second half in the chat. Does the Lord appoint all leaders and kings or just allow? Oh, okay. I think I see what you're saying. Um, you, well, within his nation, he appoints them. He's supposed to anyway. Unfortunately, you know, he had um, some kings that rose to power that that were not anointed by the prophets, you know, for that. But like the wicked kings, basically. So I would say it depends on the circumstance, honestly. You see, you could make a case, and this is a much bigger study. You can make a case for all types of circumstantial ideas of some of the kings, um, even though they turned out bad, they originally were anointed and appointed by the father. Other kings took over power and, you know, suffered, you know, they were considered a wicked king. They lived, lived and died and considered a wicked king. And so, um, and we see other kings that take over just on their own volition. I think the father does allow things to happen according to his plan. And he appoints those at the right time that he needs to appoint according to his plan. So I'm sorry, it's not a cut and dry answer, but that's, that's the best I have on that. Um, all right. My wife is asking, thank you for asking such a wonderful question that might have people speculating. My beautiful wife is asking, 
is abuse in a marriage grounds for divorce. All right. So, um, no guys, I don't abuse my wife. Just letting you know, she's, she actually deals with a lot of, of young ladies that, um, reach out to her and ask her this question a lot. So I, I know why she's asking me this. Um, so basically, um, it's, I personally believe that you're, you're engaging into, um, breaking the Torah. If you start physically abusing your wife, this is, in any community, especially like if we're going to, you know, we're trying to look at the laws of the Old Testament, um, the, the, what we call the eternal law of God. And built into that was your family was involved. The elders of the city and the community were involved. The elders, not just of men, but also of the women. So there should be plenty of people for people to go and get counsel by and talk to and tell them when when abuse is happening. Um, I can't remember right off the top of my bat. Right, excuse me, right off the top of the bat, I can't remember the exact. Uh, let me see if I can go look it up real quick because there is the there's the law about not treating your second wife with disdain. Uh, point of that law is that, um, oh, that's not right. The point of that law is if a man did have two wives, because you remember. And the Torah, there's this unique, um, unique circumstance where the husband may take a wife, uh, take his his brother. If his brother dies, he has the opportunity. If his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, who's now a widow, if she doesn't have a seed, if she doesn't have a child yet, he has the opportunity. According to law, he's, he's required actually to go and, and take her on as a second wife and give her a child so they carry on the family lineage. And if he doesn't, then there's this. Um, unique moment where she gets to shame him in public and call him the, the house of one sandal or something like that. So she gets to spit in his face and stuff like that. Cause he's basically denying protecting her and taking care of her, which is part of Torah, take care of the orphans and the widows. And she's a widow in that case. And so, so, but in some cases the husband would take on that second wife. Um, and it's not always, and we've done, my wife and I've done like a huge, um, uh, we've tried to explain this so much in the past that polygamy is not in scripture, but there are certain specific moments where, um, if, if it happens, like for example, with Jacob, with, uh, Rachel and Leah, he tried to marry Rachel, but he was tricked into marrying Leah, but he treated both of them with love and he didn't treat one of them unfairly. He wasn't rude to Leah, even though he didn't originally want to marry her. In fact, the book of Jubilees goes on to explain that he actually, after Rachel died, he loved Leah with his whole heart and his whole soul till the day of her death. And he mourned her deeply when she died. So she like, you know, she, she loved Jacob. And that after the, her daughter, her, excuse me, after Rachel passed Leah's sister, then that rivalry was gone. Leah got the fullness of Jacob's love and heart and mind. And, and he loved her. He didn't just like, you know, ignore her and put her, you know what I'm saying? So this, this was something uh, in a, in a situation where you have two wives um, that the Torah instructs the heart of a man to, to treat them both equally and fairly. So I'm building to a case here. Um, I love your, your wonderfully tough questions, my sweetie guys. Think about what you're getting to see what we get to talk about behind when the camera is not turned on. So I'm talking about the heart of a man and how he treats the women, right? Whether he has one wife or two, he's supposed to treat them the same, treat them with love. He's not supposed to show favoritism between the two. That's just one level of not showing any kind of emotional or mental abuse. He's supposed to be treating them both with love. 
it's not instructed for men to take two wives, one man, one woman. That's the original plan. There's allowances for special circumstances so that the woman could be cared for to have a second wife. But now that we've dealt with the heart of how he's supposed to treat women, whether he's got one or two in his life, let's then we, we can look at the, even though there's nothing specifically that says a man can't beat his wife. Excuse me. I said that wrong. There's nothing that specifically says that a man shouldn't beat his wife. We would assume that from Torah, he should not beat his wife. This is not Muslim. Uh, this is not Islam. So if a man can't beat his, his donkey, he definitely can't beat his wife. Does that make any sense? That, that doesn't sound good, I know. But um, the point is, it's the heart of how he acts towards his servants, his, his family, his animals even. A righteous man is good to his animals. And he's also, Exodus 21, other places, he's good to his, um, his servants that work for his household or his business. That's on a lesser level than what he's supposed to be with his wife and child. They're supposed to be like his own body. So, of course, you can't beat your own body. Of course, you can't beat your children. That's against the Torah. That's against the heart of the Torah and the spirit of the law. So, with that said, as I said before, there's a community involved. There's a community around these people that are supposed to be. And this is where if a man is abusing the heart of the Torah by being abusive to that wife. And I'm not talking about just have, getting an argument because all couples get in an argument, but if he's physically abusing her and doing bad and illegal things to her, both in Torah and also legal legalities, then she needs to be able to be protected and to have, you know, be protected from her. For example, <clears throat> this is, oh man, this is an extreme example, but it's an example. In Judges chapter, was it 19? When the, the Levite, who was not a good guy, by the way, the Levite, who um, he went into the land of Benjamin, and he was staying with this other guy, and he had his concubines with him. And the, the men of Benjamin came to his house and were trying to, like, you know, uh, engage in homosexual activity. And the Levite was trying to protect the house, and he offers his concubine to these to the Benjaminites, and they go off and ravish her, and they abuse her against her will. What does the rest of the nation of Israel do? They go to defend that abused woman and literally start a civil war against Benjamin. And what was it 26,000 men of Benjamin died as a result of that? So I guess I said it's an extreme example, but that's an example of the heart of the Torah going to defend a woman that's being abused. No, abuse is not allowed. And to me personally, that's a situation where just simply on on other grounds of not not even the the grounds of marital unfaithfulness or, or sexual morality but just the other grounds of literally the protection of the body and the heart and the mind uh that the elders are supposed to look out for their people and the judges would look righteously upon their people if they see a woman being abused like that they have to address the man as if he's breaking the torah because he is so uh, just great question sweetie not a, not an easy answer because a lot of people say, well, it's not infidelity, you know, but there's so many other parts of Torah that would apply to this. If you were a judge judging this case and looking at the heart of that man that's doing that. And so, yeah, you would allow them to be separated. And if he can't, if he can't do it, then she may not be able to remarry, but she at least can get away from him. So. <laughs> Janet, we're, we're actually um, not going to talk about that right now. Um, I'm actually working on something for the future where I'll be doing a whole series on that. So I just, there's a, there's a lot to it. So
Okay, guys. Um, uh, Kelly J, yes, I am familiar with it because I've done a video on it. It's, uh, it's called In Search of the Ark. It's a milk and meat. So go into my milk and meat playlist. And I actually photoshopped my face onto Indiana Jones. So it looks really, it looks really odd. But uh, that's the thumbnail is called In Search of the Ark of the Covenant is the title of the video. It's in my milk and meat playlist. And I address all that stuff. So you're welcome to go take a look at that. And it'll, you might enjoy that tonight or tomorrow. Um, Ashley Hathaway is asking, who will the nations be coming again? Who will the nations be coming against at the Battle of Armageddon? Uh, Yeshua. Yeah, they're coming against Yeshua and the angels. They're they're not very bright, put it like that. They're deceived, um, but they're coming against Yeshua that's returning with the angels. Uh, this is this is why Yeshua and the angels defeat them in Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. So it's also in Second uh, Ezra chapter 13 as well. It's um, yeah, they will not last long. Um, mom overreacting is asking, why did the, why does the middle East still stone people to death? Is that okay? Because they follow only the old Testament. Well, technically, if you know of an actual country in the middle East that follows the old Testament, I'd love to see where that is and hear it because they don't, they're following Islam. And that's a perversion of the law of God in a variety of ways. So if you want to hear about all the problems with Islam, then uh, there's a wonderful YouTube channel you can check out. It's called Act 17 Apologetics, and they deal with Islam a lot and do a lot of apologetics explaining the problems with Islam and the problems with the text, the problems with their, you know, how it doesn't line up with the Bible. So they're not following the Old Testament, just to let you know. Um, the, the, the precursor or the qualifications for someone to be stoned requires judges, requires an actual system set up like ancient Israel had. We don't have any of that right now. No nation in the world is following the proper system that Torah instituted for someone to be judged and stoned. So this is why it, it would be out of context and would be against the law of God. All right, guys, let me check something real quick. All right. Um, so many questions. I, I'm trying to. Um, Mr. Bear, I've actually addressed this in this series when I went over Matthew 7. The difference is a pastor who teaches bad doctrine versus a false prophet. A false prophet is someone that literally is um, leading you away from Yahweh. Look up Deuteronomy 13, the first 10 verses. Also look up Deuteronomy 18 and look at the context of someone that speaks presumptuously or speaks something that doesn't come to pass. They're not from Yahweh. They shouldn't be listened to. They're following the category of a false prophet. They tried to prophesy something that didn't happen. Um, also, a prophet was someone that actually had was supposed to have a position of authority in ancient Israel. And so this is why Deuteronomy 18 is telling you, don't listen to them. The caveat is Jeremy 13, if someone like a dreamer of dreams or someone that claims they had a vision, right, of something that's going to happen, and it does come to pass, but they're leading you away from the, the Torah, the commandments of God, the covenant, then they're a false prophet. Does that make sense? So just having a bad pastor, like as someone that doesn't understand the word very well and that's teaching stuff falsely or errantly, he's not in the realm of the true context of a false prophet from Jeremy 13, Jeremy 18. 
he's just someone that needs to learn his Bible better, unfortunately. Um, and this is this is why you know it's you know James and, and Paul tells the First Timothy and James that you know it's not everyone should be a teacher; they have a high responsibility, and also they need to be studied and approved. So this is unfortunately a lot of a lot of young men and women they get out there, they get excited about God and His Word, and they are not studied and approved yet, and they start going out and talking. You know, sometimes they even go start a church. It doesn't mean they're studied and approved. So this is doesn't, and it doesn't mean they're a false prophet. They probably have a good heart and good sincerity. And for the most part, they're teaching people like 85% of the commandments. They just don't literally call them that. They just think it's walking like Jesus or being like Jesus. They just don't realize they're teaching the commandments. They just have their terminology mixed up, they, but they're not a false prophet. There's an entire context to an actual prophet. Um, Sam Haddad, it doesn't really say, it says multitudes and myriads upon myriads in the scriptures. It doesn't give us a definitive number that translates into English for how many angels there are. I'm sorry. I don't know. All I know is that if I, I've heard someone try to calculate it one time. I can't check their work. I can't check their math. I don't know if they're correct or not, but I heard someone try to calculate it and said that there would be like, you know, ridiculous, like millions upon millions of angels per person on earth. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I couldn't understand how they did the math personally. Okay. So this looks like ancient ways. Modern man is asking, um, what's your take on second Timothy three 12. Is this speaking on divorce? Let's go there real quick and see what it's, I don't have that one memorized. Second Timothy three 12. We'll pull it over here so everyone can see it together. Okay. So it's just one sentence in the midst of a lot of context, but let's, let's go ahead and read it. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Uh, is Second Timothy three twelve? I think that's, I think that's what you're asking. Um, let's look at the first ten. It says now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yeah, I don't see this living. I don't see this having to do with divorce. I apologize. Um, I don't see it having to do with with divorce at all, um, unless you're thinking about First Corinthians. I don't, but even then, that's First Corinthians seven. It talks about Paul's ideas of you know if, if a woman who's an unbeliever wants to leave, let her leave, um, because basically that would fall into the other realm of of the the Hebrew word of indecency is, is yes, it's about immorality, sexual immorality, but it, it's um, it also goes into being in the literal Hebrew word is the word. It's like Evara. I believe it was what it is. And it speaks of nakedness. And that nakedness is used in the context of someone that's going outside of, of Torah, um, which means they're not doing covenant behavior, which means they don't have a heart for Yahweh, which means they there's going to be a lot of problems in a marriage when they're unequally yoked. So this is where it talks about the, you know, the uh, husband or the wife, if, if one of them wants to leave because they've just left the covenant, then it may be sad, but, you you can let them leave if they want because they're leaving. Does that make sense? It's like you you pray for them and you know hope they stay. But you know again, don't divorce them for just any reason. Only one reason to divorce them. But if they're trying to leave on their own, you can't stop them. That's the sad part. You can't you can't force someone to be married to you according to Torah. That would be like put that back into ancient Israel, right? <clears throat> if someone wanted to actually leave in a marriage, that means that they're leaving covenant. Um, and they're wanting to leave, they're, they're not going to be able to just 
leave their husband in ancient Israel and then just go to the next town over in the tribe of, you know, Issachar and, and find a new husband. They're going to be like, where'd you come from? Who's your family? What, what's going on? And then they'll, that next feast day, they'll find that family and be like, Hey, we got, we got this transplant over here in the, in the tribe of Issachar from Judah. Like what's going on? They're like, Oh yeah, she left her husband, you know? So no one's going to marry her, you know? So she, they basically are realizing she's leaving. She's, she's going against the covenant. And she's breaking covenant. So she'd be subjective to speak with the elders. And she literally could be cast from the community. And um, because she's not wanting to abide in the covenant because not because of an infidelity in the marriage, but because she's an unbeliever. Now there is no unbelievers in ancient Israel. Like that the whole point of it was the reason you're living in that land back then within the community was because you entered into this covenant and the terms of the covenant were that you only have one God that's Yahweh and that you're supposed to be worshiping him. And if you wanted to leave that covenant, well, then suddenly that land is not for you anymore. So this is that unique caveat of the actual children of Israel going from Egypt into the land of promise. And he's like, if you do, you know, Deuteronomy 4, if you do these commandments in my land, then you'll prosper in this land. But if you don't, I'm going to kick you out. And so, and, you know, so there's just a lot of caveats. It actually goes into a lot of judicial um, details, but hopefully that's a good summary for you. But honestly, I'm not even sure if you were talking about that in any way, to be honest. I apologize. I don't know if you hit the right verse or we're thinking about the right thing or not. Um, all right, guys, I'll take one more question real quick. I am exhausted. Um, Sam Haddad. It's not uh, Lucifer. Uh, there's huge issues with uh, no offense, brother. Um, but the question itself is very malformed. Um, Lucifer is actually a translation transliteration from the Latin from a specific term, um, the, the the light, the morning star in Isaiah 14. Um, Lucifer is not the name of Satan. Just throwing that out there right now. Satan's called many different names, but Lucifer is not one of them actually. So it's a uh, it, Satan is was not technically cast down to the earth yet. And I know this kind of goes in a lot of different things, but a lot of people, modern Christianity and traditional Catholic versions of Christianity teach that Satan was rebelled at the fall. Many of them get this from the first book of Adam and Eve, actually, because they believe he was already here. And, and if you haven't seen our, our series, Honor of Kings, we review the first book of Adam and Eve in the first two episodes of this season. Uh, you can check it out on my playlist or on Hanging on His Words, my buddy Ken Heiderbreck, his channel. And uh, we actually we actually go over these concepts about the first book of Adam and Eve and why there's so many problems with it. But this is just one of the themes that's in that book and that was being passed down and carried on by Catholicism in the modern day churches, even Protestant churches. And they believe that Satan was cast down in Genesis three or sometime before. But that's not what the scriptures say at all. And in fact, in Job, Job chapter one and two, we see Satan still able to go into heaven and stand before the father and try to ask him to tempt Job. Revelation 12, 7 through 10, in my understanding, happens bef in between the 42-month time period between uh, the Antichrist Apollyon revealing himself and the return of Yeshua. So there's a specific qualifier for that time period. And this is why the, the end of that, verse 11 and 12, is Satan goes to persecute those who keep the commandments of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is what we see happening in Revelation 13 with the first and second beast and the image of the beast that comes to life and persecutes the saints. So... 
to me personally, it's uh, the Le- lovingly brother. The whole question is kind of malformed because you're coming from traditional Catholic doctrine. That's not what the Bible actually explains and describes. Um, so, yeah, guys, I appreciate everybody being here tonight. I'm sorry that I know there's a lot of questions and I am not able to get to all, all of them tonight. Um, looks like some really great questions. Please hold them to it till another night. Just write it down, put it in a, you know notes in your phone or something, hold it to another night, come back with it. And uh, I'll do my best to try to get to them as many as possible uh, on another podcast. All right. I really appreciate everybody being here and um, I'm going to be signing off and we hope to see you uh, tomorrow.